0: of what God is after. Right? So, we're looking at a lot of things. I was wrestling through, should I title the message? Should I not title the message? I couldn't decide. So, if I was going to title it, it would be called, Kindness and Severity. Kindness and Severity. And one of the first things I want to get out there is this. To be really clear. Like, the gospel is the good news that we were saved from the wrath of God. Not from the devil. We weren't saved from the devil. You understand? The devil's one of a billion different beings that were created. Our eternal state was not being threatened by the devil. It was being threatened by the justice and holy requirements of a God who was wrathful against those things that we had willingly embraced by choice. We were in need of being saved from the wrath of God because of the holiness of God. Right? There's two major attributes of God right? that are kind of like the two pillars of who God is the two, the two what we call king attributes one is God is love and two is God is holy and under those two attributes fall all the other attributes but the motivating attribute the attribute that drives everything is the holiness of God it is the fact that God is holy. Do you understand? God is holy. In order for us to be, to be with God, we also must be holy. We must be holy as God is holy. And that is the crux of the issue. That's it. Be holy. Or don't be holy. Your eternal fate depends on that one distinguishing factor. And because we willingly chose to rebel against the goodness and kindness and love of God, we have been found in a place where we are no longer holy. And because God is holy... We cannot be with Him without also being holy. And so, that requirement is what drives the love of God to save us by making us holy again. That's the gospel. And there's all sorts of ways to couch it and approach it. You can go from different angles and, you know, Paul says save some this way, save others from this path. Like, In other words, all of it Like, the Holy Spirit can use many different means to bring us to this place. But that place is called holiness. And one of the biggest issues with the church, especially in the world, because the church misrepresented to the world, is what holiness is. Even in the church, the predominant view of holiness is this idea of being... Um, pure. Right? Right. It's, well, we have to live holy. And then when we get to heaven, we'll get to do everything we want. And we have this idea of holiness as almost this ascetic, like, 1900s nun in a classroom with a yardstick. And she's going to make sure you're holy. She's going to drive out all the bad stuff so that you are holy. But here's the thing. Jesus was holiness incarnate. Everything he did was perfectly holy. Every joke he ever told. Everything he laughed about. Every interaction. Every... Uh, expression of anger, every message was perfectly holy. Every relationship he had, perfectly holy. Every time he went to the bars and hung out with sinners, perfectly holy. Every time he ate at feasts and enjoyed himself thoroughly, perfectly holy. You see... Like, people came and they thought that Jesus, being the Holy Messiah, would have to look like John the Baptist. That was their picture of holiness. This Nazarite, vow-level, ascetic, self-flagellation, kind of like that type of imagery they had, right? Suffering with the camel's cloth, no luxury, no enjoyment. That was holiness to them. And to the predominant world today, that is still holiness. That is what holiness looks like. In the church, we see that as this idea of what holiness is. When in fact, if we're looking for what holiness is, we can literally look to the God man who came and demonstrated it for us in perfect holiness. And because of this image of holiness, this is what I was kind of where I ended the last time I spoke was that we end up in this place where we are straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Because we've, we've focused our, our idea of this, idea of being right before God, of being a good Christian, being holy, as not saying bad words, not drinking bad things, not playing bad things, not wearing bad things, not joking about bad things. We have all these things and we, we, we're so guarded against them. Right? And we're straining out these things that in comparison to the camels we're swallowing are just gnats. And Jesus uh, doesn't say don't pay attention to the gnats. He says don't do those things. Right? Go and sin no more. I'm not condemning you because you fell into this, this sin of the flesh. Which was adultery, guys. Read the Bible. It's a pretty major sin. And Jesus was like, I don't condemn you over this. But here's my instruction. Stop doing that. But remember, this was right on the back of him preaching hardcore against the the camels that he was saying were being swallowed by his people. The broken cisterns and the, the forsaking the spring of living water, Christ. Those are the big issues. And so to me, it's, it's always important to remember that you guys, we were all saved from the wrath of God. And that wrath has not gone anywhere. Do you understand? Like God is still a God of wrath. And he still feels the same way he's always felt about sin. And those who choose to to partner with sin as opposed to him. And this is the, the, the kindness and severity of God. That if you want to be able to walk confidently in the kindness of God. You need to first understand the severity of God. And how to be saved from that. Because it doesn't look... At all, like so many Christian gospel messages that are prominent out there. It just doesn't. You have to understand what you're being saved from to fully appreciate the depth of your salvation. And this is the idea here. So, in Romans eleven twenty two is this verse where Paul says, Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. If, and this ruins everything for all our comfort messages. If you remain in His kindness. There's a qualification. We hate qualifications. They mess everything up. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Imagine that statement. If you remain in his kindness. Well, that's good. You will, you will know the kindness of God if you remain in his kindness. If you don't remain in his kindness, you too will also be cut off. What a statement. Let's understand the context just a little bit so that we, we don't create our own theologies about this. Paul is talking to a church in Rome and he's trying to explain to them how they ended up saved... Since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And he says, guys, the the covenanted people of God were cut off from God. From God's kindness. Because they didn't remain in his kindness. And he says, because that happened, the gospel was brought to you guys, and you guys have now become the beneficiaries of God's kindness. If you remain in his kindness, and if you don't, you also will be cut off. That was Paul. This is what he was trying to communicate. In other words, he's saying, don't take your salvation for granted. Don't take the kindness of God for granted. Don't take the grace of God in vain. There is a very real reality to the kindness and the severity of God. And the entire scriptures is the grand story of that dance. God has come and he has offered his kindness first and foremost. Right there. But his severity is quick to follow any who refuse to remain in that kindness. And that sounds weird, but if you understand the history of Scripture, it's abundantly clear. God called Abraham out from a world that had once already been wiped out for its Antichrist living. And then calls Abraham out from that world that had returned back to its Antichrist living. And he said, I am going to call Abraham out to be a person set apart, and I am going to be To bless him with my kindness in every possible facet. I'm going to make an, an everlasting covenant with this man and his descendants forever. As long as they remain in my kindness. And he gives them the promises and the covenants that he will be their God and they will be his people. And he will bless them forever and ever. Land with descendants, with kings, with Eternal salvation, and he says, "Here's what you need to do, though. Remain in my kindness. Here's the sign that you have chosen to remain in my kindness: circumcision. And he gets circumcised, and that causes them to be marked as the people of God. And now their history is: as long as they have remained in God's kindness, meaning this, they are not taking it for for granted." They recognize God is the provider of this. He is their source. He is their provider. He is their protector. And they remain faithful to this God. When they choose not to remain faithful, when they choose to rebel against God and His ways, they then move into a place where God begins to bring His severity to bear upon them. Both are motivated... By his holiness and his love. His kindness is motivated by his holiness and his love for you and wanting to bring you into holiness. His severity is motivated by his need for you to be holy and his love for you to be holy. In Israel's history and in the scripture, and what Paul's emphasizing here in, in the end of Romans is this. That his kindness is towards those who have been approved by God. And his severity towards those who have forsaken him. Approved by God is a word used in the New Testament. And it means those who have put their faith in the promises of God as manifested and fulfilled in Christ. And so those who have been approved because of their faith, like Abraham, now are remaining, because of that faith, in God's kindness. And those who have not been approved because of their lack of faith in the promises of God as manifested in Christ Jesus, and I'm not saying those who don't call themselves Christians, There's plenty who call themselves Christians who are not in God's kindness, who have not remained in the faith, who are in pretty sketchy places. That's not what I'm saying. So don't think, oh, I come to church, and I call myself a Christian, so I must be approved of God. That's not what the scriptures say. You need to sort that out for yourself if you're confused about that. I'm telling you what the scriptures say. There's a definitive delineation here. And God's after both people. He loves them both, and he wants them both to be brought into his holiness, and the thing that separates the two groups are those who have put their faith in God to be made holy and those who have not put their faith in God to be made holy. Or as the scriptures say, those who remain in his kindness and those who do not remain in his kindness. So the language of approved is used here. So Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. This is a great chapter. It's a chapter of those who have been approved. And it's right here in Scripture, an entire chapter of examples and demonstrations, so as to not allow any room for confusion between those who are approved and those who are not. This is the author of Hebrews writing this. This is right after his most fierce chapter of warning to the Jewish Christian church he's writing to. Chapter 10 was a fierce warning against not being approved. Not putting your faith in Christ alone. Right? And so it's this church that was wanting to put their faith in things they thought were important, like sacrifices and the temple and their duties. And the warning is, don't do that. There's nothing left for you but, but accept a fearful expectation of judgment if that's where you're putting your faith. Keep it in Christ, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard it is to do. His sacrifices once and for all, You can't make any more sacrifices. They're useless. But if you do make other sacrifices, you're in danger because now you're treating the sacrifice Christ made as if it's just a common sacrifice. So don't do that. And then he goes right into chapter 11, which is this massive attempt to encourage the people and say, but guys, look. And so chapter 11 starts with this statement. Now faith, so that there's no confusion, is the reality of what you're hoping for. It's not hope. It's actually the reality of what you hope in. In other words, I hope to be saved when I'm dead. Faith tells me that's a reality now because my faith is in the saving one. Faith is the substance of the thing you hope for, the actual tangible reality of it. It's the evidence of the things we can't see yet, or that have not been manifested for us yet. And it says, for by that, our ancestors were approved. And then, listen to what he says, because I want you to understand, chapter 11, verse 1 says, for by this, our ancestors were approved. And the last verse in Hebrews 11 says this, after these were approved through their faith. The first verse starts by saying, for by this, our ancestors were approved. And it ends this whole thing and wraps it up by saying, and all these were approved through their faith. So the message is really clear. He's saying this faith is what approves you before God. And the Romans passage tells us that those who remain in His kindness are those who have been approved. I hope you're tracking with me so far. So I'm going to read this chapter 11 so you can see what examples of those who have been approved look like, so you can then say, am I in a place of the kindness of God or the severity of God in my life? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the very Word of God. So that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By this, he was approved as a righteous man. Because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through this. His faith-filled testimony, witness, still speaks to us today about how he was approved. Or better yet, why he was approved. I want you guys to tie this in to everything that I've preached on the last few weeks about the idea of broken cisterns and God saying, I have these two things against you, right? Because that's the essence of this. That's where this is all leading. Again, to reaffirm the fact that we are straining out gnats, but we're swallowing camels. We're, we're dealing with the, the sins of the flesh and the issues while living in a place of rebellion and idolatry. And this is the whole message here of what it's getting to, the difference between the kindness and severity of God. The kindness of God is on those who are not in rebellion, but could still be struggling with sins of the flesh. The kindness of God looks at a person like this and says, I am not condemning you over that. But stop, go and sin no more, but I don't condemn you and I'm not letting anyone else condemn you for that. Because you are loyal to me, your faith is in me, you are approved by me, and my kindness is on you. But those who have forsaken Christ as their source, as the fountain of living water, but are still doing the deeds, whose mouth confesses that they are with Christ, but their heart is far from Him, those who are putting their trust in broken cisterns instead of the provision of God in their life, those are the people that God is saying, My kindness is is not on you. You are not in my kindness. My severity is on you. In the hopes to bring you to holiness. It's a different stage. It's a different place. He's still after you. You could be in open rebellion against God. God is still after you. But he is after you from a place of severity. You are in real danger. You are in open rebellion. And if you remain there. There's not good things left for you. But yet. His holiness and his love. Still drive him to pursue you. And that's the history of Israel. Israel, in their rebellion, consistently rebelled in ways that are, are rated are to write about by the prophets. Gross, blatant, demonic adultery before God. In his face, not hidden, not secret. Right? Right? Where God is astounded, he says, has it ever been heard of that any nation has changed their gods? Yet Israel, you have done this in my face. But because of God's promises and his covenants made, he refused to ever completely wipe them out. But what he did was he dealt with them severely. And his judgment and his wrath was upon Israel over and over again. And in Romans 11, Paul is saying, hey, even as bad as they have been, they have not been completely destroyed because of my love and promises made through the covenants. But that, guys, this is what I'm saying, that, that, that is an end-of-the-road comfort for some of us who are in the midst of the severity of God in our lives. And we have no idea why. We don't know why. We keep saying we're blaming God for the consequences of the idolatry we live in. Not understanding the place we're in before Him. Because of so many watered down and and poor demonstrations of what it means to be loved by God. You understand? Like the pleading of Christ in all of the severity that he pleaded with, was because he loved us. The judgments and wrath of God on Israel was because he loved them. And I want to get to that. So let me finish this. Here are all the other examples of what it looks like to be approved by God. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death, and he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his transformation, he was approved, having pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he is, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after being warned about what was not yet seen, in reverence built an ark to deliver his family. We could teach a whole message on that. How wild is that? A man who had never seen rain was told to build a giant boat. Took him like a hundred years to build. Never gave up, never wavered, built this boat. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Just listen to that. By that, by his act of faith, him being approved led to the severity of all those who didn't believe, who weren't approved. God dealt with them severely. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, was, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was barren, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age. since so she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. And therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These are like epic demonstrations of faith. And I want you to consider that, that, that these are the demonstrations of faith. This is what, this is what approved faith looks like. <clears throat> these all died in faith without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been remembering that land they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now aspire to a better land, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was offering up his unique son, about whom it had been said, In Isaac your seed will be called. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead from which he also got him back as an illustration. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones." There's a lot there. That's a really cool passage. Dig into that. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasures of sin and of this world. For he considered reproach for the sake of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. You see that? It's like, that's what it means to believe in the substance of things that can't be seen. And that's how the author defines the faith that approves you that, that this guy rejected the wealth of Egypt, which at that time was the wealth of the world. Before this stage, all the wealth of the nations had been brought to Egypt through plague and famine and through the wisdom of Joseph. All the wealth of the world existed in Egypt and, and Moses was a prince of that kingdom. And he forsook that and chose to be recognized with the slaves because he saw they were the people of God. And he said the inheritance of the people of God that he has not seen yet was of far greater value than the wealth of the nations being at his fingertips. That's approved faith. By faith... He instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. I love that example because it's It's not on the same grand scale as all the ones before it. It's just not. All she did was believe that God is. And acted accordingly by risking her life to save two spies. And she is forever recorded in the hall of faith. In the word of God. Because that's approved faith. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. I'm going to pause right there because I want to point out that there was a guy in here. There's two guys in here that to me, like, aren't like all the others. When you look at Barak, look at his testimony. Go read his story in Judges. His testimony is that he was afraid to go into battle without Deborah. That's his claim to fame. Like if you're in heaven and you're Barack, you're hanging out with the middle crew. You know, you're not, you're not walking around with the other guys in this list. You were told by Deborah, lead the battle, and he said, I'm uh." Are you coming? (laughs) And and we think like, okay, that might have been fine, except Deborah literally tells him, I will go with you, but I want you to know, because of this, a woman is going to receive the glory for this victory. Like, Barack, you're going to lead the the army, and you're going to get victory, but you're not getting credit for it. But somehow, his demonstration of faith which the only way I can make sense of this is that he believed firmly that God was God and he was with Deborah. And so he said, Deborah, if you're with us, I'll do it. And that simple, imperfect, humble, borderline embarrassing demonstration of faith approved him before God. Because his heart and faith was fully trusting God in the face of war against a much greater army. Do you see? The rubber met the road, and in that rubber meeting the road, his loyalty, his allegiance, was demonstrated that he genuinely had real approved faith in God to bring them the victory. He just needed the prophet to, to confirm that farm. Very imperfect faith, but approved faith. And then Samson. Samson is the epitome of someone who didn't strain out a single gnat in his life. But at the end of his life, he refused to swallow the camel. Do you understand? It took the severity of God to humble him... And to bring him to a place where he was able to see the true issue, repent, and die in approved faith. His life is a cautionary tale, yet his testimony is that he died with approved faith. He didn't strain out a single gnat, but he refused to swallow the camels as well. And that gets you into heaven. You see that's kind of the point of the message. As long as you don't trust in broken cisterns and your faith is in the true fountain and living water there is nothing that will separate you from the saving love of God. Nothing in heaven on earth Beneath the earth, no principality, no power, no ruler of darkness, no devil, no demon, nothing. This is the promise of God. But it's got to be approved faith. Not American Christian faith. We're going to get there. Who by faith, this is the whole list, We, we don't have time to talk about them, but all these guys who by faith... Conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead, raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release. So that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings, scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were died by killed by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Think about that. He summarizes the end of this list. These people who suffered greatly. These people who are confronted with the choice to, expra- to, ex- to escape torturous, violent deaths. And they refused to accept that escape because their faith was Genuine. It was approved, and it was demonstrated by the fact that they said, I have a better resurrection by not escaping this than by, than by turning my back on this faith to escape this. That's how their faith was approved. Abraham's faith was approved by willing to kill his promised son. And it says, the world was not worthy of these people. They wandered in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. All these people were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised at that time, since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. In other words... the fulfillment of their promise, the thing their faith was in, would not find full fulfillment until Christ. Because even though they were saved by believing the promises of God, that salvation did not become manifest or attainable until Christ came to fulfill the promises. And that's faith. This is the faith we have the, the chance to look back on. So remember, Hebrews 11 started by saying, For by this our ancestors were approved, and it ended by saying all these were approved through this saving faith. None of the people in this list were guilty of broken cisterns or forsaking the fountain of living water. None of the people in this list were found guilty of putting their faith in provision, in sustenance, in source, in anything else other than God. That's the unifying factor between every person in that list. And that's the unifying factor between every person who stands with God in his presence in heaven made holy. Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about this great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, that they just read. He says, therefore, guys, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who have witnessed this truth and they've testified of this truth, since that is the reality of us, Let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured those sufferings. He despised the shame of it, but it was worth it. That's what it says okay and he endured such hostility and says you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and this is the crux of the message right here this is the difference guys kindness and severity that so many of us so many of us have for- forgotten what the love of god looks like according to his own testimony and we think, we think that we're not walking in the love of God, that he's far from us. There's two camps, guys. Those of us who are, who are in the place of approved faith and the kindness of God is on us, but that kindness looks like discipline for our, for our improvement, for our sake, for our own holiness. For us to be able to walk in the righteousness of Christ and not in our own righteousness. His kindness is upon us, but we've forgotten that the exhortation is meant to treat us as sons. And God treats all of us as his children as demonstrated through his discipline. And then he makes it clear. No discipline feels good in the moment. It doesn't feel good in the moment. It's painful. But later on, however, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, here's his exhortation, since he says, look, discipline does not feel good. It's painful. It's unpleasant. It's suffering. It's not good. You might feel like I'm far from you, but it's my actual hand that's on you. And to those who allow themselves... You must allow yourselves, it will produce this peaceful fruit of righteousness, and therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Do you see the, there's an expectation? There's a qualification, as always. Here's the encouragement. This is what your faith should be in. Since you believe this now, if you have approved faith, you believe you are a son or a daughter being treated as such. Since your approved faith has put you in a place to believe that, your required action, your homework now is this. Strengthen your weakened hands and knees. Right? In other words, tuck in your skirt now and endure and Persevere. Run the race, discipline yourself, endure, and let the fuel of that be your genuine approved faith that God is, and that he is the rewarder of those who will diligently do this. Do you understand? Your faith is what drives your perseverance. Your perseverance doesn't produce faith. If you try to persevere first, you produce works and you produce death but if you have approved faith if you've been able to come to God and say I believe that you are and that you are holy and that I need to be holy in order to be approved by you and that you have provided a way to make me holy and it is simply me putting my faith in you and that that faith will then be demonstrated in all these approved ways I am willing to endure. Here's this crazy stat I saw. I think, I forget, maybe Caitlin Baez posted it. And I looked it up. It's this crazy study they did on rats. They took like 12 rats or something, and they put them in tubes of water that were over their head. And they left them there to see how long they could go before their body completely gave out. And like the longest of the rats made it 45 minutes before they all just sank underwater to drown. And so in this experiment, they then took the rats before they drowned, brought them back out and rescued them, gave them a breather. I think it was like one hour. They gave them one hour breather and then they put them back in the tube. They had just gone till their bodies, till their muscles were gone, blown out. Anyone ever work out? You do three sets of really hard weights, take an hour off and go try to do more. You're not going to be able to do the same weights at the same set. Your muscles are gone. These mice get put on, put back in, and they went for six days. Six days. The conclusion of the study was this, that once they had been convinced that there was rescue coming, they were able to endure far, far longer. And I was like, man, that's Hebrews 11 and 12 when I saw it. I was like, this is the... Now, since you know there is such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you and demonstrated the the tangibility of the promises and the faith. Now, endure. You have not resisted yet to the point of bloodshed. Endure. I know you think you're at your wits' end. Endure. You're not. There is a great salvation that you are walking in and you can endure till the end. Revelation literally says, those who endure till the end will be saved. It's because of that saving faith. Anyway, man, this is the conclusion. Hebrews 12 ends by saying this. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. And in this context, it was God speaking, a better promise, a better covenant. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, meaning Moses and the prophets, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates that the removal of what can be shaken That is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. And you will only ever serve God or anyone in reverence or awe if you have rock-solid, genuine faith that He is who He says He is. And then it ends it by saying this, For our God is a consuming fire. So, here's the challenge. This is the altar call. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And as we know, Paul means approved faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail this test. Test yourselves and examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith and you genuinely do have Christ living and dwelling at the center of your being. At the center of your identity. At the center of your life and your choices and your decisions and your motivations. Are you truly no longer living but Christ living through you? That's the test. And here's the exhortation. If you are found to be in the faith, then rejoice and repent. Because God's rebuke is the expression of His love towards you as a son. If you are not found in the faith, meaning you have failed the test, you have discovered in your life broken cisterns, and you have found other fountains you trust in, then weep and repent. Because God's severity is the expression of His love towards you as someone who is lost that he finds worth saving. Then when you found that saving faith, rejoice that you have been found by so great a salvation. But this is what it looks like to test yourselves in the faith. It does not look like, well, I feel like I feel like I sense when God's present. So what? I go to church every Sunday. I'm a generous person. I don't say bad words. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do bad things. I hardly ever lust. In other words, like, you have a really, really fine strainer. And you do a really, really, really good job of straining out all the nets and all the things that would make you a not good moral person. But you live... With something other than Jesus governing every part of your life. You are not in the faith. This is what it means to be in the faith according to Paul and all the New Testament authors. Are you in agreement with and obedient to the teachings of Christ and his apostles? I'm going to repeat that again. This is how... According to Paul, he determines if someone is in the faith. Are you in agreement with and obedient to the teachings of Christ and his apostles? That's it. It, You know what that does? It puts a real premium as someone who wants to be in the faith to really, really, really put the work in to learn what the things Jesus and his apostles taught. In that place, you'll find that Jesus taught things like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors likewise, and if you do that, all the other things will be fulfilled. You'll realize things like that, but you won't until you go and learn what Jesus taught. And in that place you then start to say, oh, what does it mean to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And that will bring you right back to broken cisterns and fountains of living water. So here's the challenge, guys. God is doing something in our midst, in our community, and he's doing it nationally. There is a refining going on. There is a... A clear delineation happening between the kindness and the severity of God in His church. Things are being exposed left and right, but also at the same time, it is producing a holiness in His people that is going to radiate and 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 communicate the holiness and the love of God in such a way that people are going to say, "What must I do to be saved?" And then become enraptured by the love of God they experience in that saving grace. And they will never be the same. And they will never be shaken. And they will never trade anything lesser than that ever again. But right now, we have to do real business and say, God, I know you love me. The word of God is incredibly clear about that. Because you loved us so much, you came and died. But now partner that with this. He only needed to come and die because he's holy. And he needs you to be holy. Do you understand that? There was no need for him to die if we had never rebelled against God. We would have been holy as he is holy. But his love compelled him and it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross so that he could take great joy in making us holy. This is the mission. This is the gospel. This is our mission. So what's the business we do before God? Are you in a place where God, you're walking in the kindness or the severity of God? If you feel resisted, If you feel like everything in your life is falling apart, nothing ever works out, you can't seem to overcome this sin, or this sin, or this issue, or this issue. I would challenge you to do business and say, God, is this because I am in a place where you are dealing with me in severeness? Test yourself. Find out if you are in a place of approved faith before God. This is the encouragement of Paul. And if you find yourself that you are, great, rejoice and now repent of the things that have separated you from him. If you find that you are in a place of severity, weep and repent and then rejoice that you have been saved. The altar call is this. Especially if you feel like you may be in a place where God has been dealing with you pretty severely. And you've been struggling with surrendering to that. There's been a lack of surrender in your life, a lack of submission to God. And you may have been playing that off as something minor. As, oh, it's just something I wrestle with. It's just a struggle in my life. I encourage you to treat that as something far more severe than just a struggle or an issue. You're talking about finding a place of known rebellion in your heart. And you're calling that a struggle. You should be calling that rebellion and dealing with it like you would a rebel. And bringing it to God and letting Him end that thing in your life. So I want the first altar call to be for that. If you feel like you're in that place, I want you to come down. I want you to come down now. We don't need to do our t- typical thing like, listen, if you feel like you, there's something in your heart and you're in a place of potential, there's areas in your heart where you're, you're a rebel before God in that area, come receive salvation. Come receive pardon from the King. And freedom. And the rest of it is just, if you are finding yourself and you're in a place where you're like, you, you know and you're trusting in the kindness of God in your life, but he's treating you as a son and there's some places that you need to work through, then come up and let's get prayer. That's the end game here, guys. The end game is always that the message leads to people encountering God it you want to know my formula there it is preach something really good from scripture and then invite people to come encounter God over that we're going to just start worshiping and we're going to do this and guys if you're on the prayer team and you want to come up and just be ready altar call type prayer not just prayer ministry but just be up here for altar calls right unless you're someone that wants prayer then come up get prayer first and then cascade it down to others Sometimes this helps. I'm feeling a little bit of uh, awkwardness here. Here's what helps. Let's everyone stand up. Then it seems like there's action and motion happening and people might be more likely to continue up to the front if you feel that's a need in your heart. And we're just going to begin to worship God in this. Just continue to be present before God and let God who's present do his thing. Let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. God, right now, we just ask that you would speak and move on heart. I ask for supernatural humility to permeate this place right now, in the name of Jesus. God, that supernatural humility would fall; that the fear man would be stricken dead in the moment; that the prize of being being close to you and being made right before God, that the prize of that would be of greater value than the opinions of men around us. God, that you would move and you would bring that humility that draws us close to you, God. And that freedom would reign in this place right now. That you would be the consuming fire that you are right now, God. That your people would embrace both your kindness and your severity. walk with willing hearts, willing to receive whatever it is you're giving. That if you are operating and offering your kindness, we receive it. If you are offering your severity, we receive it because we trust you. We trust that you are good and that you love us and that you want what's best for us. And if your severity is what you diagnose, we need God. We embrace it and we invite it and we thank you for it.